0: It is Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. It is Justin Shackle welcoming you to episode 41 of Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. We discuss pitching every single week with the five-time World Series champ, the Cy Young Award winner, David Cohn, research maven James Smythe, and myself. We have a great guest this week, guys, in Oral And We're going to get to Oral in just a few moments, but we're going to dive right into the opener here. Some Big announcements, I guess, big moves being made in terms of the pitching landscape, maybe not necessarily on the mound, but in terms of personnel, coaching. We saw a college, a big college at that, LSU, swoop into the major league level and take away a pitching coach during the season. That is unprecedented. Wes Johnson is going from the Minnesota Twins to LSU, and a big reason why, it, probably, it might not be the only reason, but when you hear about the reported differences in salary, the big reason could be the money. What do you guys think in terms of this move potentially changing the landscape of how pitching coaches are viewed in Major League Baseball?
1: Johnson going from about 350000 with the Twins, reportedly, and now 750000 with LSU. That's
2: a big raise. Well, yeah, it's it's almost to the point of being embarrassing to the major leagues, right? You, these these are billion dollar franchises, and they have recently, as you, if, you, if you followed the hiring practices of major league teams, including the Yankees and Matt Blake, it's almost like you're reaching down to the college level and and looking for talent there because our universities are leading the way in technology in terms of these pitching laboratories and cutting edge biomechanics uh, research and. You know, the, uh, the the analytical approach to pitching, which is right at the forefront of the game on every level right now. And in particular, it's almost like the major leagues are behind in that regard, that the colleges are ahead. So uh, it, this needs to change. It's a slap in the face for Major League Baseball and their organizations. The minimum salary for a rookie baseball player is uh, over 700000 And the fact that you just lost a great pitching coach to Cleveland Indians for less than half of that, he was paid three fifty. And he just got more than double his salary to go back to college in the middle of the season. It is a huge slap in the face. It's a wake up call and uh, something needs to be done or else this is going to continue to happen. And it's nice to see that some of these big college programs are doing so well, namely the sec and in, in college baseball, that they have the revenue that's kind of being driven uh, to be able to make these kind of moves. So yeah, there's a sea change in the landscape of uh, you know, coaching behind the scenes, development, analytics, who's fluent, who's on the cutting edge, and it matters. We've seen it um, tangibly affect major league pitchers, and uh, watch out. This is a huge, huge story.
0: Yeah, these are a couple of layers here. First, the Twins are first-place team, and a, a big reason why is because they've had effective pitching. They've had a lot of guys who you may not have heard about on opening day really step up, make a name for themselves. I think Wes Johnson obviously has to get some credit there for that. And like you said, David, LSU – obviously has the resources to do something. I didn't think though that they had the wherewithal to spend that much on a pitching coach for their baseball program. I mean, you would, you know that LSU has a great baseball program, but you always think about the big money being in football, maybe even their basketball team as well. Obviously they take all sports seriously, but to have that kind of coin ready to go for a pitching coach was eye popping. And for, for that to kind of, get leaked get you know the dollar amount get leaked and stuff like that and be reported on it did not look good for major league baseball and i think you're going to continue to have reporters peel back the layers here of this dynamic and, and what coaches are being paid around major league baseball and it is ironic because a lot of these coaches were like you said were picked out of the college ranks because they knew the technology they had the experience that major league organizations were looking for in terms of the cutting edge technology and here we are going in reverse potentially if one person you know if one person does it if one school does it you know more are to follow so it's an interesting story that i don't think just goes away with west johnson leaving the twins and going to uh, to lsu all right guys oral hersheiser is our guest here this week on towing the slab david it was so enjoyable hearing you two just talk shop for a good portion of this interview forget me teasing it here we go it is uh it, it's so good you have to get to it right, right here, and I know our listeners are gonna be in for a treat here. So, uh, so this week here on Tone the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, it is Bulldog, the nineteen eighty eight Cy Young Award winner, Oral Hershiser. Oral, thanks so much for joining us here this week, and this has been in the makings for quite some time here on Tone the Slab. So, we're really glad that you're able to come on here, talk Dodgers here in twenty twenty two. Obviously, talk about your pitching style, your mentality on the mound as well, but. I think James and I would be remiss if we didn't go back first to a time, let's say 1988 NLCS. in between games, there's this New York baseball columnist by the name of David Cone. And he's writing up some articles, some opinion based articles about how the Mets uh, have the the championship series won, so to speak. And I, I heard that was bulletin board fodder for you and the 88 Dodgers. And uh, can, can you just expand on that a little bit here? Take us inside this Dodgers clubhouse and 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 let me know your feelings about David Cohn, the columnist.
3: This could take the whole half hour. If the listeners uh, and viewers, uh, this would be fantastic, too, because the context has changed over the years, of course. Right. In the moment, there's a, you know, a visceral reaction to the article the the loss the day before the fact that they had beat us now I think 12 out of 13 games and we're down 1-0 in the NLCS and you know they are supposed to just walk all over us which it looks like really they are going to so and then you have a manager like Tommy Lasorda who uh will accentuate anything and will take it to the hill and uh, that's what Tommy did I mean The article got posted. The article got read in the locker room. The article revved the whole team up. And there was like an FU kind of uh, attitude with the game too, as the guys took the field. And I think what it really did was distract us from the context that the Mets were going to kick our butt, uh, you know, and they had all year and they had the better lineup, the better pitching staff, the better everything. And, uh, it wasn't, I'd say, a, a very good distraction for our locker room. And it also was a lot of energy that was created and a lot of camaraderie. Um, that team was built on energy. It wasn't always completely built on uh, on ability. It, you know, you had the stuntmen, which were our utility guys, led by Mickey Hatcher. You had the everyday players that were injected with a Kirk Gibson and all of a sudden a, an eye black incident in spring training that took him and put him off that Jesse Orozco was playing a a joke on him and put eye black in the band of his hat. And he was embarrassed, ran off the field of the first spring training game and quit the Dodgers had to come back and have a team meeting. He wanted to kill the guy who did that. And Jesse had to admit it. Uh, we got that taken care of behind closed doors, but of course it was a huge story. And I think it reignited some of that fire that really carried us through the season. So It was probably an embarrassing and terrible moment for David, but I would hate that to be the highlight of his career because his career was so much better than that incident. And I'm sorry that that's famous for him. Uh, Actually, one of the reasons I am now on this test and reached out to David because there was a very candid interview that I saw on TV that he did about that. And I was so uh, blessed and honored That he would come clean and actually talk about it, because I think that's something great for the fans and history to know, you know, what happened with David and on his side and and what we know what happened on our side with the Dodgers and completely respect the man and completely uh, respect his ability to pitch. Uh, I always thought he was the best gamer in the world, one of the most competitive people I saw. And the, the freest and most athletic pitcher that you're actually going to see out there on the mound with the changing of arm angles and the experimenting with pitches and doing that in big moments and in big things. And I think he gave a generation of pitchers at times uh, the freedom to go out there and be an athlete and to go out there and to experiment and to find ways to get people out even when you didn't have his best stuff. And uh, that, was, that was for me his biggest legacy, not the incident in
0: '88. Definitely worked out for David Cohn, for sure. But when you say Tommy Lasorda kind of accentuated it verbally, can you, can you kind of take us through what happened there? Well, I'm still in baseball and still a broadcaster, so I can't
3: use all the colorful language. But uh, we did have, back in that day, uh, a pitch a pitch counter, you know, the clicker. You know, it was used. And, you know, we actually had this thing called pencil and paper, and we actually charted pitches, And with the clicker, we would count pitches and we'd have to chart it was a fastball for a ball and it was up and in, and then we'd actually keep score. Um, So that clicker was in a lot of different pitchers' lockers. Uh, And during that meeting, I would think that the clicker would almost break for every F-bomb that Tommy said, Uh, (laughs) for every time that the F-bomb was next to the word cone. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) it, it, it uh, it, It was very explicit and it was very emotional. And Tommy's had plenty of meetings like this, but it was definitely some of the easiest material for him to have those kind of meetings.
2: (laughs) I have to jump in here. You know, I mean, it's it's, um, (laughs) just to give you a little more color on this story and obviously oral covered it. Great. Um, You know, I, my dad came out, my father who, you know, I lost this year, was my first pitching coach was one of, you know, everybody has a relationship with their father. Mine was, was, was right there. The guy who taught me how to pitch, he came out, we flew him out. And uh, the the Mets had a PR director named J- uh, uh, Jay Harowitz who requested the Dodgers. You said, "Hey, David's father's flying out. Can you know? Can we get him a, a special ticket?" So they put him right by the Dodgers dugout that night. <laughs> and so you talk about gamesmanship. They knew exactly what was going on. When I walked out for the first inning to warm up, everybody was on the top step. Their trainer was screaming at me. I I think you're not supposed to look at the opposing dugout but I took a peek over in my peripheral vision and I saw every single Dodger that was in uniform or not in uniform on the top step screaming at me. Like I had never heard before in my life. It was unbelievable. My dad was sitting right next to the dugout. He heard every word. My dad's a salty guy. You know, he's heard, he's been around the block. He said he'd never heard anything like it himself. I mean, it was remarkable. My legs were weak from nerves, you know, and to say that I choked in that game is an understatement. I clearly was impacted by, Everything that happened, my stupidity for participating in that article, uh, the fact that I got the byline for that article, but I didn't really write it. It was Bob Clappish who wrote it. I didn't get to see it before it was printed. I never got to approve it. It was thrown out there with my name on it, and I had to live with it. So Mm -hmm. I had a couple of choices. I had to stand up and, and be responsible for some of the things I said. And uh, of course, you know, but that just to provide a little color there, my father, my dad, Ed Cohn, right by the Dodgers dugout that night in, in 1988 during the LCS.
3: Well, Dennis David, S- uh, that bench jockey went on for a long time, I'm sure. And uh, <laughs> yeah, the best best bench, uh, bench jockey that ever got me as far as listening and looking in the opposing dugout was uh, in Wrigley Field, Dennis Eckersley. He hated me. And we are friends to this day and talk about it but he wore me out i mean i was a librarian
0: i was a pencil head neck geek i was all kinds of stuff to that guy unbelievable guys did you know that the rail riders the yankees triple-a affiliate team plays only about two hours from yankee stadium so the triple-a team is less than two hours away i'm gonna say it is less i've taken the trip it is just under two hours that's nothing you don't even need a nap afterwards take the trip check out the baby bombers in action at pnc field it is one of the most beautiful minor league parks that you're gonna be able to see in the country it was renovated just a few years ago there's good eats around the ballpark they have lots of great stuff happening at the park including fireworks every single Friday, a minor league staple. You want fireworks during the summer. You have to wait till Friday, but it is there at PNC field. You have great drink deals on Tuesdays and Thursdays and wagon Wednesdays. You could bring your dog, your furry friend to a game. And there's so many promotions with a minor league team and the rail riders have them going on all summer. You want to check out their schedule for all the promos. It is a great experience for all ages. This Saturday, July 2nd, they actually have a double fireworks show happening. There's giveaways at the gate and custom USA themed game worn jerseys that'll be auctioned off online after the game. I remember Derek Cheater rocking one of those when he was rehabbing with the Yankees minor league affiliate. So you can potentially own a Stars and Stripe USA themed game worn jersey if you auction off the right cashola after the game. Make sure you see the Yankees hottest prospects make their way up to the big leagues get your tickets today by going to SWBrailriders.com. James, take us through the career of Oral Hershizer, the pitcher, before we talk about the, uh, the Dodgers here in 2022.
1: Sure thing. Oral 1988 NL Cy Young Award winner, NLCS MVP, World Series MVP, and a gold glove that year. One of the great seasons and one of the great runs uh, towards the end of a season to carry a team to a championship. That NLCS against Coney's Mets. Oral started games one and three, came back to get the save in game four, and then pitched a five-hit shutout in game seven. An incredible performance. But in 88, it has to be about the 59-inning scoreless streak, the longest scoreless streak in MLB history. Started with four shutout innings to finish a game in Montreal on August 30th. Then he goes through the rest of the year. Complete game shutout in Atlanta. Complete game shutout in Cincinnati. Complete game shutout against the Braves. Complete game shutout in Houston, in San Francisco. Then, last start of the regular season, 10 innings short of breaking Don Drysdale's 1968 record for scoreless innings. In San Diego, the Dodgers don't score, and Oral goes nine shutout innings. So it goes to the 10th. Then, after a strikeout and wild pitch to start the inning, there's runners at second and third, two outs, but Oral gets Keith Moreland to fly out to right, for 59 straight scoreless innings, one of the most incredible records in baseball history.
2: Yeah, meet Joe DiMaggio, right? Those are the two records. If you think about two records that are standing right now that probably will never be broken or have the highest probability of standing, there's Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak at 56 games. There's Oro Hersheiser's streak right there that you just mentioned, James. That was just incredible. I mean, stylistically, uh, Oro, I guess, I mean, that's part of the nerd in me that wants to talk to you about how you developed your style, because you were a trailblazer. I don't think you've gotten enough credit in the history of the game for the style in which you pitched that front door two-seamer that you threw to lefties changed the game. I mean, that's not an understatement. That was a frowned upon pitch. It's not like Don Drysdale showed you how to throw that pitch. It was kind of the opposite, right? I mean, people discouraged you from throwing that pitch. Two-seamers had to be away from lefties. Four-seamers had to be away from righties. That was tried and true for a hundred years. It seemed like from pitching coach after pitching coach. You broke the mold. You were the trailblazer. How
3: how did you do that? Um, I had trouble throwing the ball inside the, to lefties for strikes. First and foremost, um, I also learned. <clears throat> excuse me, guys. I also learned how to throw the ball to both sides of the plate from a tip that I got from Sandy Koufax. And I haven't taught this, and I haven't talked about it very much. But we stand on one leg for a living, right? our back leg. And if we can repeat everything above our back foot, then we should be able to throw the ball almost anywhere we want, if we can repeat everything above. And so I redesigned my spikes, the spikes back in that day, we had the single spike in the back. And Sandy wanted me to tilt my foot one way or the other, depending on if I could go to the outside or inside part of the plate. And so I redesigned the spikes to put four spikes in the back so that the difference between the two spikes when I felled them on the rubber was both corners. Because like a half inch adjustment back at the rubber is like 18 inches down at the plate if you just put two strings and do that. And so he always wanted me to leverage the ball and he always wanted me thinking about my back foot and staying on the inside of it and, and driving down. And he's like, why don't you think about that to get the ball inside to lefties? And when I started doing that, <clears throat> it became easier to throw strikes inside the lefties with the four-seamer. And I'm like, why can't I do this with the two-seamer? So I just started doing it on my own. And I noticed the hitter's reaction. The hitter's reaction was backing up, you know, doing this kind of stuff. And Ron Peranowski and Tommy Lesor were of like, Bulldog, you cannot throw that pitch in there. That is the left-hander's sweet spot. And I'm like, Tommy, I have never seen a guy swing a bat really well when he's doing this. So <laughs> I just kept doing it. And, uh, and, you know, your teammate and great commentator and great guy, uh, Keith Hernandez, to this day, he haunts me. Because when we run into each other, when he does the Mets games and I see him, he's always like, do you know how good you would have been if you would have pitched inside more? And so it haunts me to think how many games maybe I could have won or how much easier pitching would have been. He goes, you just, you lived away and you could, you'd come inside for effect, but we all kind of knew you weren't, you know, coming in there very often. And the more often I came in there and, and I don't know about revolutionizing the game, but some of the, the best compliments I've gotten, David, are from you, from Greg Maddox, from Tom Glavin, from John Smoltz, the guys that really thought about pitching and came out and watched other pitchers, especially ones that maybe had stuff that was like them or guys they kind of admired. Uh, those guys have all told me uh, that that was a big part of of their career and their development.
2: Without a doubt, Oral, you know, you did. You impacted, you know, Hall of Famers. Greg Maddox followed your cue all the way to the Hall of Fame with that pitch, without a doubt. You were the first one. All the hitters couldn't believe that it was a strike. They would just yell at the umpires. They would go back. They'd look at the video, and they go, oh, it it was a strike. You know, the ball moved that much. Mm -hmm. Jose Canseco in the World Series that year in 88 said, Oh my God. I went back and looked at the video. These pitches that that I thought were no way close to the strike zone had tremendous late movement on them and they were moving like they had never seen before. So in my mind, yes, you did. Just the reaction of the hitters, the reaction of opposing pitchers, the impact that you had on, Guys like me and Tom Glavin, like you said, I mean, we know, we know that you were the trailblazer, that you developed a whole new style of pitching to this day that you see pitchers doing front door and back door all over the map now from from a roadmap that you provided way back in, in the late 80s.
3: I don't know what you want to get to, but I got to hear from you because you had great movement and I had a reason that I could create that movement and still don't see it taught today but I I'd love to know how you made your fastball move. And then maybe I can give a tip on how I made my fastball move.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I think um, the thing that really helped me was, you know, in uh, 1987 with the Mets, I was drilled by a pitch and it shattered my pinky. And to this day, it's still kind of crooked. And that, (laughs) that kind of helped me set off center on kind of a, I I called it on the skinny side of the four seam grip. Most guys did on the fat side of the four seam grip. I did on the skinny side. And if you know about four seam grips, you understand what I'm saying. I kind of off-centered a four seam grip on the skinny side uh, where, where, uh, you know, uh, it's
3: kind of the cutter side.
2: Exactly. The cutter side of the grip. And it it helped me just kind of get a, get natural movement where I didn't have to manipulate the baseball. So I think it kind of helped my hand set off center on the ball because of that injury that I had. So I, you know, before that, I was kind of a marginal middle relief pitcher. I didn't know if I was going to make it or not. The next year I went was nineteen eighty eight. I went twenty and three, and uh, right. finished third in the Cy Young. To you, won won the Cy Young that year. I think of Danny Jackson with the Cincinnati yeah. was second in the Cy Young in nineteen eighty eight. So, yeah. mine was a little bit of an anomaly. You know, I, an injury kind of led me to change my grip a little bit. Uh, I had a natural two-seamer too that I threw over the top and tried to throw like you, but I couldn't couldn't quite master it or trust it or had pitching coaches that discouraged me from doing what you did. That's why I admired you so much because you went against the grain and, and went against uh, you know some pretty powerful pitching coach voices. Ron Peronowski is pretty strong, pretty strong opinion, yeah. pretty strong reputation. So you know that, that's the part I admire because I, I like pushback. Uh, you know I, I like that you push back on that and and that there's another way we can do this. And uh, to to me that that's you know your attitude. Is as, as, as important as anything in, in that regard in your development.
3: Yeah, Ron taught me an awful lot. Sandy taught me a lot. Dave Wallace, another great pitching coach, taught me a lot. Having Mike Sosha back there giving you good feedback was amazing. The, re, the, the way your, your injury led you to movement and a grip that worked, my development of my sinker really led me probably to some injury that I had with my shoulder because. When I learned that no matter what pitch you throw, your arm is going to pronate at the end. As it decels, it's going to pronate. And with a two-seamer, you want to pronate and get inside the baseball, almost like a hard screwball. So I thought, if that is what happens at the end, why can't I do it more at the beginning? So right out of my glove, I would put pressure on the inside of my hand to get my hand in that position. And I made sure before my arm passed my ear that my finger was winning the race. My index finger was winning the race between my square finger and my index finger. This one's winning the race. And then from here forward, I could just compete. Everybody's trying to do something out here, which is so inconsistent because every once in a while you hit it and it's a great one. Every once in a while it's late and it's flattened up in and a ball. And every once in a while, oh, it's just an average one. It's like, how do you make it good every time? And I always thought about having that finger win the race and also not letting my wrist go backwards because that's where the bad ones are. So my wrist could only go from here forward. And that's where is a good one to a great one. And having the fingers win the race, the finger win the race and having the wrist not collapse and going like that, that was the way I thought about when I needed to fix it. You know, you don't think about it every pitch, right? But you, it's in your toolbox of how you practice, what you're practicing on when you play catch, and the habits you build. And that was definitely the key for me on that pitch.
2: Do You think that led to some shoulder issues, you know, later on?
3: Well, I, because, you know, as you go on and you go on, you probably are wearing out certain parts of your body because we're doing so many things repetitively. You know, if you throw your curveball improperly, then there's more stress on your forearm, which leads to your elbow. If you maybe tweak your shoulder on a bad mechanic, a while, maybe, maybe because when you turn your hand in and get that wrist in that position, your shoulder kind of falls forward. And I wasn't really muscular up in here. So that the part of my shoulder that wore out was the very front, you know, the anterior labrum of my shoulder wore out. Dr. Joe, when he saw the MRI, he goes, it looks like pounded veal. And it's probably that humeral head all those years rubbing into the front of my shoulder. And, you know, of course we came up in our generation, like we started to get arm exercises and rehab, right. And all the things and three, my Tech bone anchors put me back together and I came back, but you know, there's more modalities and things and what they know about the shoulder. I'm not sure a guy today would get hurt using those mechanics or using that thought because of everything around it. We were learning so much in our generation. You were a young player. I was getting to my mid-career, but so much has changed as far as the health. I think they could find the measurements, the exercises, and and it's really not that big of a tip to get inside the ball.
0: I'm just sitting back listening to you 2 <laughs> talk, I'll let you guys talk, jump talk in. Yeah, this could, is well, I can go, I so I could
3: go back and
1: forth like this all day. I can do this for
3: six hours. <laughs> this is awesome.
1: Go,
0: yeah, James. <laughs> you have you have anything on on? oral's technique or or should we move on to what we're seeing from the team that oral broadcasts for now this Dodgers team in 2022
1: I'm blown away this is fantastic let's get into the
3: dodgers
0: let's do, let's do the breaking ball now david that'd be <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there
2: you go yeah we can get into seam shifted wake now now they, they know how to sort of orient the seams to get the kind of movement i guess, you know i guess before we get to the current state of the dodgers as you're a broadcaster i you know i i have to ask this question because you you're so broad in, in your your roles that you've played in this game. You've been in the front offices of teams, the, the Rangers, you've been a pitching coach, a broadcaster now. You're right at the forefront of kind of the analytics revolution. You've seen it kind of come into play. What are the biggest changes you've seen since the, you know, the days you pitched through your your coaching days to what you see now? Have you been surprised by anything analytically that maybe uh, hit a light bulb for you? Or do you see it as a positive or, or, you know, just your overall impression of the changes you've seen in the game?
3: The uh, first thing is the games are too long. I think we're going to get to that with the pitch clock and what they're doing down in the minors. They've cut off 30, 30 minutes. I think that would be amazing to cut that off and have more action in the game, uh, less strikeouts, more balls in play, more get the running game going a little bit more, all that. I know that they're really seriously thinking and probably going to do it, get rid of the shift. I think that's going to bring more excitement back into the game. So I kind of like the game has moved forward in some areas with all the analytics and the game theory on how to construct a a lineup, how to construct a roster. Uh, But I think that we need to turn back the clock on a few things. And I think the game is smart enough to do that. I think it's listening to the fans. I think it's listening just to the ITS of being at a game and waiting for action. I think we wait for action or a ball in play almost four minutes now. Uh, We're back in our day. It was like two and a half to three minutes before the ball got put in play. And that non-downtime of a minute, I think is going to add to the anticipation for the fans and the excitement of the game of things going on. Uh, the strikeout is, is something that I think we need to change also. And I think it will as they as they do the proper changes and thoughts uh, as we go on. Um, Analytics, guys like you and me, I don't think we would sleep in this generation. I think we would be gathering all this information and breaking it down. And just like a broadcaster, the, the most important role for my statisticians and the smart people around me that feed me stuff is their ability to edit. And as pitchers in this day and age, I think that's what you need to be is a really good editor of all the information to know what's going to really function in the moment and how to execute it. And there are so many subtleties to a pitch and a situation that all that information would get processed. And yes, you got pitch calm and the catcher's going to say fastball up and away, you know, breaking ball low and in, I want it down the middle in the dirt. But as a pitcher, you know, there's, there's a range of what you know your pitches are doing and how you're trying to do that. And you know where your kind of miss pattern is if you're paying attention and you know the hitter's strength and where, where he could go deep on you compared to where he'll only get a single. And I would love that in this game today. You know, we were doing it by eye test and some scout that gave us an advanced scouting report. But that was just the beginning of pitching that was kind of our base as we come into the game or the last five at-bats, this guy's had off us. Or, you know, the schedule is different now, David, where you don't pitch back-to-back against the same team. We had to pitch every, the fifth day. We've got the same team again. And are we going to change our theory? Are we going to stay with the same stuff? So I love the game. I love all the information, all the cutting edge stuff. I think that it's a, it's a game of processing and editing and then being able to use it and apply to the situation because the hitters are not exactly what that data says in the moment. They might be slightly hurt. They might be hot. They might be cold. The situation might call for it. You know, there are smart hitters that adjust and then there are rockheads that swing the bat the same exact way, no matter what the situation. And you got to know all that about the opposing team.
0: Well, there are certain pitchers on this Dodgers staff that are making the opposition look like rockheads throughout this National League here at Oral. Uh, There's a team at the time of this recording. They lead baseball in ERA. On the individual level, Tony Gonsolin leads all pitchers in ERA in opponent's batting average. I think that's a a great place to start when you take a look at this season's team, 9-0, 1.58 ERA, and 69 strikeouts and 74 innings for Gonsolin this season. Do you think... Uh, He pitches near this level for the entire season. I really do.
3: Um, he's given us enough information now, as far as the events to say, yeah, this can continue. Is he going to have bad outings? We all have bad outings. And pretty much when you take the mound, it's about every fifth outing. You feel like amazing. And it's just flowing out of your body. The other four you're making adjustments all the time. And in one of those four, you're probably going to get bombed or be lucky to get out of the game. Um, He has always been a world-class athlete, but he didn't have many innings in the minor leagues. And so he's been learning to pitch the whole time he's been up here. And now it's all coming together. And if you watch it, the number one mechanical change that he made in the minors to the majors and still was developing was the timing between his upper half and his lower half. And when that timing is off, your command is going to be off. And it's going to come and go then as you climb the ladder of consistency, there are going to be bouts of doing it well and bouts of doing it poorly. And so he's always been a guy who's come back with a decent to great ERA. He's always been a guy who's figured out a way to get through five, six innings. He's always been a guy that's had a really high pitch count because of those inconsistencies of learning how to pitch. Once he learned that timing and then was able to now start using some of the knowledge from Kershaw and from, You know, Rick Honeycutt and Mark Pryor now uh, that all came together and and took the learning curve and just made it go like that. But it really was the foundation of the delivery that made him start learning more of the wisdom that was around him and really accentuating it. So, yeah, that split change up, the fastball location, more fastball velocity, because now he's got his man strength and he's been lifting weights at the big league level for, you know, a few years. So, so many things are coming together, so can he keep it going? Yeah, I think we thought he was fragile mentally at the beginning, but it was really just more inconsistencies of learning his delivery, and, and it wasn't fragile. It wasn't a, men, a, a fragile you know, side of the mind. It was, it was just he was just inconsistent and in getting there, and he's there now.
1: 27 straight starts dating back to last season with three runs allowed or fewer. That's the third longest streak excluding openers behind Jacob deGrom in 2018 and 19 in his Cy Young seasons and Jake Arrieta 2015 his Cy Young season into 2016 great run for Gonsolin
3: he's got a chance to be a household name because he's got a chance to be the starting pitcher for the National League at Dodger Stadium so when people are going to tune that TV and they're going to go who's this Gonsolin oh my god look at those numbers and then all the broadcasters are going to be given the narrative on him and he's gonna he's gonna be a name
0: It's Dodger bullpen. Saw Daniel Hudson go down a little over a week uh, ago, or in the last couple of series. Do they have enough to stay inside the organization in terms of effective bullpen pitching? Uh,
3: Whether they do have enough inside or not, uh, they will go outside. We know that, and they, and when they go outside, they don't go for borderline. Oh, we hope so's. You know, they usually go into the trade market. You know, if it's Mookie, if it's Freddie, if it's uh, you, Darvish, if it's whoever it is, it's a name. And, and they will do it. And they will pull the trigger if the guy's available. Um, They're, they're going to hope some of these guys come back. And uh, they've lost some for sure. You know, when you have ACL, or if you got an ulnar collateral ligament, whatever your problem is, uh, those aren't coming back. But, you know, they hope to get Bueller back, they hope to get Trinan back, they hope to get a few others and uh, we'll see maybe Caleb Ferguson, Uh, but they're always looking. Um, They are always looking. We did a Dodger all-access event last night where we hosted and interviewed guys. We had Jaime Harin, Fernando Valenzuela, Walker Buehler, Brandon Gomes, our general manager, Brandon uh, McMillan, our strength and conditioning vice president, and it was great, and Brandon Gomes said, you know, somebody asked him about you know, the days now coming into the trade deadline, they're like, we are always on top of everything. I mean, the phone calls are always working. It's not like a trade season. You're always keeping up to date with every roster and keeping the communication with all the teams. Uh, it's amazing. I'm really,
0: you know, so proud of our front office and how hard they work. Well, one thing I want to ask you here, because the division is so tight in the NL West. Mm -hmm. You're obviously getting a closer look than us here on the East Coast, night in and night out. What have your impressions been with the way Bob Melvin's been able to lead the Padres in 2022?
3: They needed some maturity over the last few years. They had gathered a lot of talent, but they needed somebody with the respect in that position, I think, where they could create a culture. I think they needed it with some players. I think that's why they got Eric Hosmer. I know he hasn't performed always to the highest level where he came over, but they were looking for some leadership. Uh, Manny Machado was a huge sign, but Manny's not the type of player that's really a leader in the clubhouse as much as he's a great talent and you watch him go out and perform. Uh, Fernando Tatis came up and is an electric, unbelievable player, but still young and probably not at the maturity level that you would say somebody who could hold a team meeting or on a daily basis say, hey, hey, look at me, follow me, watch me do it. But I think they've found now a guy that has the reputation, the respect, and the leadership and communication ability to really, to really set that organization on a place where they're going to go. We know now they have money to spend to get a great roster. We know they can really evaluate talent because we see some of the young guys coming up and doing a great job, and they know that how the game is won, where they have really tried to improve their pitching. Um, and so, yeah, they're they're a formidable opponent now for the Dodgers in the West.
0: People, it is time to step up to the plate with DraftKings Sportsbook. It's an official sports betting partner of Major League Baseball. And new customers can bet just five bucks on any game and get one hundred and fifty dollars in free bets, no matter what, win or lose. If you're looking to turn another small bet into a big payday this baseball season with DraftKings same game parlays, you can do just that. Create your own parlay by combining multiple bets like which team's going to win something like simple total run scored extra innings. There is more and boom, you have a shot at an even bigger payout right now. If your same game parlay doesn't hit, you can get a free bet back up to 10 bucks. DraftKings is safe. It's secure. It's reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code SLAB. And new customers can make any $5 MLB bet and get $150 in free bets no matter what. That's promo code SLAB only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Major League Baseball. The fine print read quickly. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. MLB trademarks used with permission.
2: You know, I think, you know, Oral, that um, when you look back at your broadcasting career in particular, do you feel like, you know, do you still get that itch to go back down on the field and be a pitching coach again? I mean, I I get that lure every now and then, too, but I'm pretty settled into a broadcasting career at this point. I mean, you've done it all in this game, front office, pitching coach. I mean, do you ever get that itch to go back down? Do you think you'll ever go back in uniform again?
3: You know, maybe the wise old owl, if I could ever be wise and old, uh, maybe the guy that sits in the bullpen and does it, you know, I don't know if you could do it on the bench because I don't know if you're going to end up having the energy with everything that it takes now and the mental brain power that it takes. It's the game has shifted so much as far as, you know, when we were playing and prior to us, the manager was the guy who has done everything right. He was the wise old owl. And he wasn't, you know, he was considered the smartest guy in the organization because he had the most power, but slowly but surely the manager has a completely different role now. You know, it's it's media driven, it's team chemistry driven, it's really casting a vision, but every department is like super expert and the manager can't keep up with that because it, it would take your whole career, right? And so I get an itch to pitching coach. I think the game's probably passed me by as far as that. Not as far as tips, as far as being somebody there to kind of have a great bedside manner and give a tip here and there and calm somebody down and point them out, hopefully in the right direction or to help edit some of that material we talked about. So yeah, I get that itch a lot, but I chose broadcasting really for lifestyle after experimenting and, and in evaluating all the other lifestyles I was having with front office, assistant general manager, assistant to the president, broadcasting, pitching coach for three and a half years, the, the lifestyle. And a lot of those other jobs, David, as you know, you get fired and have to move your family about every three to five years. <laughs> so yeah. it was really kind of going, my passion, my love is not completely the life that's good for not only me, but my family.
2: I I guess, you know, one last question I have in that regard, too, is, you know, we mentioned the 1988 LCS, the Mets and the Dodgers, and you remember Jay Howell actually had pine tar on his glove and got thrown out of the game. And then all of a sudden about, uh, I don't know, what is it, two years ago now, we heard about spider tack. Had you ever heard of spider tack? Did you? We always thought pine tar was just to help you grip the ball, that it would increase your spin rate. Now all of a sudden we have this data that shows us that, spin rate can be greatly increased with the help of sticky stuff. Is that something that, that you were aware of, or that it caught you off guard or I'd never heard of spider tack.
3: Never heard of spider tack. Of course, we've all experimented with how to grip the ball. Uh, I had pine tar where I take it about a couple hours before the game and I'd rub it on my hands and then I take rosin and I try to build my hands to be kind of tacky, like get it into my pores almost. And then I always kind of would pour a cup of water over my head, especially on cold days and non-humid days to have the water dripping down my neck so I could actually activate the rosin and maybe the pine tar that was in my hands. I didn't, I didn't have pine tar on my glove, but I think at the end of a season, the palm of the glove would all of a sudden start to get a little crusty because probably every day, you know, a little tiny bit of that rosin and pine tar would get in the glove. But as far as activating it, moisture for me was good yes I did use pine tar but there was it was never black it was never spider tack it was and I was just looking for something to give me confidence the ball's going to stay in my hand and I'm not going to hit the batter especially on the cold days I mean I was at Jay Howell's press conference when he got thrown out and uh, I stood behind him because during the series you know how bad that weather was I think most of us had something sticky on our hands or we wouldn't have been able to throw. I mean, we had been rained out. It was 33 degrees. It might as well have been sleeting or snowing. They forced us to play and uh, because of the television schedule. So no, I didn't know about SpiderTac and I didn't know it would increase the rate like that. But I guess as SpiderTac came in, uh, it must have really changed the game because Tar wasn't doing that. Spider attack must have been doing that because in our day, no, it it wasn't doing that, you know, hitters weren't complaining and batting averages and strikeouts were better. So yeah, it was definitely different.
2: Are you in favor of moving forward, you know, just quickly, um, should they treat the ball, I know the Japanese baseballs are pre treated kind of a tacky leather on the leather part or should there be a substance major league baseball approves and maybe you can have behind the mound next to the rosin bag or how do, how do we get past this? Cause a lot of pitchers are complaining about the baseballs nowadays and gripping a ball.
3: Yeah. I don't, you know, it's, it's quite a combination, right? How does the ball fly after it's hit? How is the ball gripped by the pitcher and how much spin rate do we want? That keeps the game where everybody says this is an exciting game. So they've got, it's a tough equation. It's a tough equation. And then, what's the mentality of the hitter and the pitcher when all of a sudden the gripping and the flight of the ball changes, you know, does the hitters, are they trying to adapt the hitters mentality to get them away from the swing and miss and going for the home run? Cause now all of a sudden, if the ball falls, falls short, like it is this year on the warning track, a lot more, are the hitters going to look for more ground balls and line drives? I think getting rid of the shift is going to take and change some hitters mentalities. We're going to see some individuals win comeback players of the year. I will put it on record right now. Max Muncy might end up being comeback player of the year when they get rid of the shift. I mean, he's hitting (laughs) like 160. He's still hitting third, fourth and fifth in our lineup at times. And, and he's got more loud outs to the designated second right fielder than, than anybody in baseball. So we'll see. It's going to be interesting. I don't, I, don't, I can't give you an answer where I can actually say this is my opinion because I, I haven't really analyzed all the data and how we want the game, but I know the players and management have told me the ball's flying differently. Uh, I know that maybe the seams are a little higher and it's easier to grip, but that's actually making the ball leave the bat like a balloon, but then stop like a balloon. Like when you hit a balloon, it leaves fast, and then it just ooh, stops. That's what the ball looks like it's doing now, and it might have something to do with the seams.
0: Right, or Before we let you go, we end. No, my interview- wife's
3: gonna make me do chores. Don't let me. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: have you actually have one chore here, but it's cool because it's been uh, it's been pre reciprocated, I guess you could say, for lack of a better term. Uh, we we end our interviews by giving our guest a question from a prior guest, and wow. we, we like to link the the baseball community together. So your question was asked a while back, and we'll give you our guest that you can pose a question to. But here's your question. It came from the uh, starting pitcher of the New York Yankees, Jamison Tyone.
1: Wow. I think a guy with as much playoff experience as he has, and I'm a guy who has never pitched in the playoffs, I would just be curious what his preparation was like pitching into October. And if he was on a team that he knew was going to make it into October, would that switch up his routine at all? Um, Towards the end of the year, would he crush it harder in the weight room? Would he taper back a little bit in the weight room or you know, throw more or less towards the end of the year? And then just pitch to pitch, pitching in the playoffs. Um, is there anything you did differently to perform in big situations um, deep in October?
3: I need his phone number. <laughs> Yeah, he's a thoughtful guy. He really, that's a thoughtful question. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great question. And there's probably like six questions in there. And (laughs) you have noticed that I don't give short answers. Um, So, oh, wow. I mean, from the weight training to the pitch selection, to the preparation, to dealing with the nerves, um, I don't even know where to start. My brain is just exploding. Uh, I think that if it's a team you've faced before, There's some strategy to changing up a few things to get people off your trail. It's recognizing the hitters and the situation at an even microscopic level compared to the regular season. I think there are decisions hitters make and pitchers make in the regular season that are for the broader context of 35 starts or 600 at bats. And I think there are decisions that you make in the playoffs that can't be made in that context. I threw some sidearm pitches to Maguire and uh, Canseco in the World Series because I wanted to just put it in their back of their heads. I knew I was getting tired. I knew they were getting used to my stuff. I had given up a few runs. And I'm like, I didn't want to pitch with it like David did at times, but I wanted it in the back of their brains so that maybe I take a little sting out of the bat. And in their last at-bats in the final game, they flew out to the warning track. And I knew I had some bad stuff, but maybe that was one of the reasons their bat was a little slower. Um, what are the other questions? Holy smokes. Um, backing off on the workload, um, if I was completing a lot of games and had a lot of innings, uh, one of the hardest things to learn as a young pitcher is to not overwork in your side work because it is so much fun to learn how to pitch, pitch well, have a great side work going, and then you throw too much in it because it's so much fun, and then you have a dead arm or you're not ready for your next start. So when I was pitching well and locked in, if I played catch and it felt good, like a three-point shooter I don't think has to continually make unbelievable shots and one you know, pass, shoot, I, I think you could shoot free throws and go, I got it, and that's what playing catch for me was. And if I had it, I didn't even throw side work I, I, in 88 I, in 89. And I threw my 87, even 85. I second half of the season, I might have threw a side work like every third start. And the only reason i throw it is if I got knocked out in the third or fourth inning or I really had to grind on a pitch. Oh God, we should have episode two of this because I could give you some <laughs> yeah. stories.
2: There you go. But
3: I think we gave should. They me a, a mentorship <laughs> role with him and put him on a golf cart and drove around spring training. and And the whole golf cart ride, the first time we met, was a half hour of him telling me how good he is and <laughs> what he's going to do,
2: I've heard and I'm like, it.
3: "Oh, that's great! You know, we'll, we'll I'll watch and let's see the next yeah. year." We took the golf cart ride, and he goes, "What do I need to change?"
2: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yes, the moment of truth. Yes, or I would we, love to do this again before the postseason. Then maybe we can do this, you know, and do a little postseason preview and get back into this a little bit.
0: Whatever you want, you got it. Yeah, we need half number two in the second half for sure. Uh, really quick. Yeah. You have to ask a question for someone. And, uh, the guest we have coming up here is a pitcher for the Tampa Bay Rays, Shane Boz. Wow. You know, I can't, I can
3: say that I have, I'm not doing road games and we haven't done a Tampa game. So I cannot even picture his mechanics. How many years have you been in the big leagues? Less been- than a year
0: less than a year, <laughs> a year.
2: he's a flamethrower right-handed flamethrower he came over in the chris archer trade he oh was, yes you know yes, that yes. big uh, trade where they you know they, they you know they, the rays just killed the the pirates the poor pirates have really yeah. taken a beating of all their pitchers that they, they go say, somewhere else and end up dealing
3: yeah. i think my question he's a power, to him power, power be, righty he's a power yeah. righty. my question to him would be um, because you throw so hard At what point in life did you start throwing really hard and know that you were going to be one of the harder throws on your team and maybe in all of baseball? And how has your priority list changed from I can beat everybody with my velocity to learning how to pitch at the big leagues and understanding what is my priority list for each and every pitch and how is that adapted and where do you think you're even moving in the future as far as changing your priority list as you go about your business?
0: beautiful i love that it's interesting to hear you know everyone throws 97 now right but uh you know at this point you wonder if a guy who is a real flamethrower if they think man i'm probably the fastest guy on my team what do i have to do there but they could also be thinking oh man i'm one of a handful of guys you know like the pool is littered these days so it's an interesting dynamic we're seeing Oral, this was amazing. And yes, we are going to take you up on that. You need to come back second half of the season. We're going to talk more Dodgers and just just more about pitch design and just for James and I, we're just going to kick back and listen to you and David yuck it up. It was awesome. I love it.
3: I love this, guys. This is a, that's a payment. You know, you don't have to send me a shirt or a gift certificate or anything.
2: <laughs> toe in well, the slab.
0: Yeah, toe in <laughs> the slab. There we go. Thank you, Oral. We appreciate it. Very nice, right, brother. Thank care. you so much. You got it. Guys, let me tell you about the most reliable, the most trusted individual in the cardboard business. And I'm talking about sporting cards Greg Morris cards. Greg Morris is beloved, probably the most beloved card seller on the planet because the math, the data, it backs him up. He sells over 80,000 cards every single month. If you do the math, that's over. 2,000 sports cards a day and it's all exclusively on ebay greg morris card sells baseball cards from every single era pre-war post-war modern you name it you're searching for it they're gonna have it why do people trust gmc for buying cards so much because greg morris and his team they hand grade every card they sell buyers have been trusting greg's grades for years so if greg says the card is mint well, you know the card is mint. Go to gregmorriscards.com to, to see their inventory, and GMC wants to give you ten bucks in free cards just for hearing about them. Right here on John Boy Media, go to their website gregmorriscards.com, find the cards you want, and if you win the eBay auction, message them with the code John Boy to get ten bucks off your order. Guys, I'm pretty excited because we kind of just confirmed our like our first two-time guest. Coming up, it's going to be it's going to be Oral Hershiser, and uh, we we I don't think we even tipped the iceberg with what Oral can can dive into. Not only with what he's experienced on the mound, but what this Dodgers team is going through here in 2022, where they're at now, it's definitely not a familiar place compared to the last several seasons. When you take a look at their position in the NOS. so it's going to be interesting to see what it's like maybe in a month or two when we have Oral back on talking Dodgers and the NL West in the second half. All right, this week in baseball history, or I should say this week in pitching history, James, what do you have for us?
1: All right, June 29th, 1990. That's 32 years ago, Wednesday. Two no-hitters in one night. Dave Stewart of the A's no-hits the Blue Jays in Toronto. Then about half an hour later that Friday night, the Cardinals-Dodgers game in Los Angeles begins, and Fernando Valenzuela pitches a no-hitter against the Cardinals. It's the second day in MLB history with two no-nos, but the only one that anyone might remember because the other was April 22nd, 1898 with Ted Brightenstein of the Reds and Jim Hughes of the original Baltimore Orioles. But Dave Stewart and Fernando Valenzuela, two of the best pitchers of their era, throwing no-nos on the same night this week in pitching history.
0: It all happened. This is a very Western episode, guys, between oral. And and here this week in, in pitching history. And at least for what I'm about to talk to, uh talk about, I should say, with three up, three down, it's gonna stay out west, but as we go into three up, three down, what do you guys have?
2: Well, for me, you know, I did in Sunday night baseball, and we, you know, a couple of times we've seen this kid, there's a young flamethrower that started a reliever and now is really establishing himself in the rotation, and that's Spencer Strider. And uh, I I really believe that he's gonna do it. He's legit, you know, a lot of times it's hard for guys that throw hundred miles an hour to become starting pitchers, their velocity will diminish a little bit. Do they have enough in the secondary department to sustain two and three times through the order that starting pitchers need? I think he does. He's he sported a low nineties change up the other night that really kind of lit me up. I'm like, ah, the light bulb went off. And I said, that's it. That's the third pitch he needs. It's legit. He's got a wipeout slider already to go with that upper nineties, hundred mile an hour fastball. They say he's about six feet tall. I, I don't know if that's the case. He might be a little less than six feet tall, but he got over seven point seven feet, two inches of extension on his pitches, and uh, in, in that start Sunday night for a guy that's five eleven to get his stride out that long, hold on to the ball that long, and release a hundred miles an hour that much closer to home plate—that is special. So Spencer Strider's for real. He's a follow. If you haven't seen him pitch. Put it on your calendar. This, this kid's something to watch a true drop and drive style, great extension, uh, just remarkable stuff. And he's got a third pitch. He's got a change up too. So watch
0: out. His Strider Gonsolin was awesome on Sunday night. Strider really. living up
2: to his
1: name with that extension. And uh, I was doing, you were doing the ESPN broadcast. I was working on the ESPN 2 K Rod broadcast, and it was super impressive to watch Strider throw. Uh, you mentioned the fastball 98, 99, 100 plus, the slider. 119 batting average, no extra base hits against it this year. He's really uh, solidified the rotation there. I'm going to cover something from the weekend, too. Christian Javier of the Astros at Yankee Stadium, seven hitless innings with 13 strikeouts to start a combined no-hitter with Ryan Stanek and Ryan Presley. First no-hitter I've ever seen in my life at any level. So it was uh, pretty cool to see, even though it was against the Yankees, and even though it was a combined no hitter, still super impressive. And Javier was just dominant.
0: Yeah, and for a while the next day, the Yankees were were hitless as well. I think through the first what six or seven innings, six and a third, six and a third, sixteen straight hitless innings. Uh, That was the tied for the third longest streak, uh, or tied for the longest streak since 1961. Something interesting though, the other two teams. Since that 1961 season, with the equal amount of uh, hitless innings in a row, 1973 A's, 1981 Dodgers. If you're following baseball history, you know what happened those uh, seasons with those two teams. They went on to win the World Series. Now, I'm not saying it means anything, but it was kind of a neat twist as you watched uh, Yankees Twitter kind of twist in the wind over the weekend against uh, the Astros over those two days. Obviously, the Sunday night game or the Sunday game, I should say, uh, worked in their favor in the end. But. Hey, something that's going on here, and it falls into what I'm doing up with uh, three up, three down. I'm, I'm recording this podcast, if you see it on the YouTube feed, from Yankee Stadium. The Yankees are playing the Oakland A's right here. The A's, as it stands right now, worst record in baseball. We know that. But the Yankees are seeing three quality starting pitchers in this series. They saw Paul Blackburn on Tuesday. They're seeing, again, we're recording this on Tuesday, so Frankie Montes tonight. And then Cole Irvin. All three have had very exceptional seasons for the Oakland A's. And I think if you're a team like Oakland, no player is safe. I don't care how much control they have under one player, the way things have been going there. So these three, you should keep an eye on, if for anything, how they could potentially impact your team near the trade deadline. Obviously, we've highlighted Montes before the season. During the season, he's one of the big names available along with Luis Castillo. But I keep an eye on Blackburn and Irvin as well. Again, they're, they're more controllable, but I don't think anybody's safe with this Oakland Ace organization.
2: True that. All the scouts are on it. That's a great point, Jack.
0: So a good pitching rotation there. And, and we're getting close to the trade deadline. It's going to be interesting. Oral was talking about what the Dodgers are doing. Phones are always on. Things are heating up here as we enter toward the all-star break and that trade deadline, guys. Uh, thanks for for hopping on here. Again, we, I love doing it with you guys each and every week. Thanks to Oral Hershiser for coming on. We're definitely going to have him back on for round two near the second half of this season. Big thanks to our amazing producer, as always, Dan Rourke. A reminder, new episodes drop each and every week, either Tuesdays or Wednesdays. You want to be on the lookout for when they drop. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It's the best way that you can support the show as we roll along here during the 2022 season. Tone of the Slab, pitching with David Cohen, production of John Boy Media. We will talk to you next week, everybody. Take care.